William Derezowitz taught English at Yale University and is the author of several books, including most recently, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. This is William Derezowitz. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Duncan. Uh, I am here with William Derezowitz. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Sure. Happy to be back. Yes. Um, since you, you last came on, you've uh, put out a couple of books, uh, The Death of the Artist and most recently, The End of Solitude, uh, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. Um, I, I really wanted to talk to you because this concept of uh, the role of the artist changing in our society uh, with the rise of the internet and social media uh, is uh, extremely salient for me and I think for a lot of young people where we are so used to consuming just buckets of content and the question of where this content comes from, how it's being produced, uh, whether this model is sustainable for artists um, is not raised nearly as much as it should be. Um, so just sort of as a, a leaping off point here, what exactly, what exactly is the problem? Like when, when you talk about the yeah. death of the artist, people say, oh, right. you know, you can, plenty of people creating art out there that doesn't seem right. good to me and seems like it's easier than ever to get out there and right. see your art and reach an audience. What's, right. what's going on? I should stipulate that the title was my publisher's preference, <laughs> not mine, because it is so extreme but you know it serves the purpose of getting people's attention which is actually kind of the point the point is uh yeah you can put your stuff out there and there's certainly some benefits to that but one of the big problems is that everybody else can also put their stuff out there and so every artist is now competing in what we the attention economy uh and it's interesting i mean obviously in earlier media ages, there was some kind of attention economy. I mean, newspapers were competing with each other for our attention. Newspapers in general were competing with radio when, you know, once radio was invented. But the term attention economy, as far as I know, didn't exist yet. So what does it tell us about our attention economy that we suddenly started to feel the need for this term? Well, one of the things it tells us is that there's a vastly greater number of people and entities competing for our attention, like orders of magnitude greater. Just one number that we can throw out there at the beginning is that the number of musical acts that have music online globally, and of course the competition is global, that number is 25 million. 25 million. And 40,000 songs are added to Spotify every week, which adds up to 2 million a year. Except I just lied to you because it's not actually at 40,000 a week. It's 40,000 a day. Mm. So that's actually 14 million a year. Yeah. The other thing is that uh, you're not just competing with the other 24,999, et cetera, musical acts. Uh, the internet has, has made it that every entity, every attention-seeking entity, exists on the same platform, right? So it used to be that you would listen to music maybe on the radio, maybe on your stereo, and you would go to, you'd watch a movie in the movie theater, and the newspaper obviously came to you as a physical newspaper, and, you know, etc., books and art and so galleries and so forth. Um, 
Now, obviously, you you could switch your attention from one to the other, and people did. You know, you put the newspaper down, and you put on it, put in a CD or whatever. But there was some effort involved in that. There was a barrier involved in that. Now, there's virtually no barrier at all, right? Click, 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 click. So, um, the 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 difficulty of people of keeping people's attention, even if by some miracle you've actually gotten it has has become much greater as well. So that's the first problem. I mean, the problem with the good things that the internet has done. So let's stipulate that that it's, you know, it's opened up the playing field, you know, you don't need to ask permission for the gatekeepers, blah blah blah. But so everyone else has heard the same thing also. Yeah. Um the other thing is so the subtitle of the book, The Death of the Artist is How Creators are struggling to survive in the age of billionaires and big tech. Kind of a long subtitle, whatever. But the point is, the book is about financial survival or financial death. So, yeah, you can put your music out there, but first of all, probably no one's going to notice it. I mean, the vast majority of songs are hardly ever streamed ever, and even then maybe by your friends. And then even harder than that is to get people to actually pay you for what you do which is kind of important if you want to pursue your art, even just to make some of your money pursuing your art so you don't have to spend all of your time making a living and supporting yourself. And it's gotten really hard. I mean, it's always been hard for artists, but it's actually much, much harder now. And that's the thing that the sort of Silicon Valley booster kind of narrative that you just gestured at in your question doesn't talk about. I mean, the narrative is, there's never been a better time because the gatekeepers are dead. The the digital tools to create your art are cheap and easily available, and you can just reach your audience. You can reach your audience without mediation. The other thing that Silicon Valley doesn't tell you is that Silicon Valley has taken all the money, right? I mean, the tech platforms uh, are basically siphoning off the vast majority of the revenue that music and writing and film and everything else creates. Right. Yeah, that that's okay. So there are a couple of things in that answer that I want to sort of uh, go into more detail on. The attention economy. This is one of these things where it seems like even successful artists, you see this particularly with music, feel as though this is a game that they have to play. Um, someone who's been in the news recently, who's kind of maybe one of the more ugly examples of this is like Kanye West, who in the beginning of his musical career, uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but a lot of people, myself included, would consider his music to be uh, genuinely really great. And it seems like as he wanted to prolong his career and maintain his place in people's attention, it became, um, he sort of just got this feedback mechanism where he realized, oh, uh, causing controversy is a way to get my name in the news right before an album drops and uh, boost sales. And then it becomes attention for attention's sake. And you see this not just with him, but with like a lot of artists right before they have a project out, they say some crazy thing on Twitter or whatever. <laughs> and then it seems like people are sort of just molding their behavior um, and oftentimes molding the art to respond to this attention economy, where you have rappers now talking about how they they make sure that their their lines are tweetable, that they're they're compact enough. Um, 
this seems like something where this is not even just like people who are not making money. It, it's it's perverting even the most successful of artists. Um, w would you agree that, I mean, is there anything that could be done about that fact? Um, first of all, I would agree. I wasn't aware of the examples that you cited. So thank you for informing me about that. Rap is not something I've ever followed, but it makes perfect sense because it's something that in one respect or another, everybody has to do. I mean, there are different attention-seeking um, methods, maybe depending on how big you are. I mean, obviously, Kanye can say something controversial and the entire world will pay attention. The artists that I interviewed for The Death of the Artist, and I interviewed close to 100 and 140 people altogether. They weren't all artists. Some of them were like, you know, record producers or whatever. But they all have to, at least kind of at the micro level, constantly call attention to themselves uh, mainly that happens through social media you know they have their followers maybe it's seven thousand followers on twitter not 70 million but you know they have to kind of feed the beast of those seven thousand i'm thinking of a cartoonist that i profiled in the book they have to feed the beast of those seven thousand followers or their people on patreon which has been, become a really important means of support for artists and you know, when you subscribe to Patreon, you expect a certain um, frequency of content being produced. Um, yeah, um, everybody has to do this. And uh, it's a huge drain on people's spirit and and time and energy. And also, I mean, I think in ways that I hadn't begun to explore, actually. Uh, I, I do talk in the book about how the ways the new conditions have have shaped the way people make art. I mean, shaped the art itself. But the specific thing you're talking about, I think I, I didn't I didn't know about, but it, but it, you know, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You mentioned the frequency of content. Um, I don't know if you saw uh, Bo Burnham's Inside. Um, it was on Netflix. It was, it was kind of speaks. I think to I heard about it. It's about a, like a middle school kid, right? Um, well, he had done another movie uh, called like Eighth Grade, and that was about middle. Oh, school. okay, that was it's, that. Yeah, yeah. Inside was his own like sort of um, uh, variety show, basically inside his house during the pandemic. Um, <laughs> okay. and it talks about these kinds of attention economy issues, and one of the things that he pointed out, and to your point about the frequency of content, is that on sites like YouTube um, and with people who have podcasts, etc there's this expectation that, um, you know, the algorithm boosts you on like YouTube, for instance, if you put something out every day. And his, um, Bo's point, and I'm sure other people have made this point where it's like, if you're a, a serious artist, there's no way you're, I mean, putting something out every day. Like, that's right. You know, I mean, you do have an occasional van gogh who at, at some point in his life he's <laughs> painting like a, a painting a day um but then he would go through dry spells um so it's yeah. it's hard to imagine that this is um i mean the, the artists that you talked to did they feel like that consistently degraded the quality of their work well i should say that a lot of the stuff that people put out is not exactly their work right so they're sort of they're just maintaining contact with their audience by you know, tweeting out their thoughts, you know, they have a blog. I know, I know that's a little retro, but, you know, whatever, in some in some form that still exists or or process drawings or drafts of manuscripts mm. or just whatever it is. Right. 
sometimes, especially when people were really trying to kind of establish a presence, they would do like a drawing a day or a story a week. Um, I don't think I directly asked them the, the question, but I, I mean, obviously, yeah, <laughs> obviously the, the the work isn't going to be the same level of quality. And let me just say, it isn't just the frequency of putting out the work. It's also just what it does to your ability to kind of sink into your creative trance, right? I I mean, the flow, people talk about a flow state or, you know, getting, getting into it if you're a jazz musician, right? I mean, that's the place from which art gets created. And it's a place where you don't have to worry about uh, a time where you don't feel the pressure of time and you don't feel the pressure of productivity. Um, this is antithetical to the way people have to proceed now. Yeah. And, and speaking of pressures, one of the other points you mentioned in that uh, initial answer that I wanted to also address was the fact that you're now competing globally. And yeah, I'm curious what you think of this line of argument. Um, this has not just been made uh, by me, but uh, more, more notably recently, uh, Sam Bankman Freed, uh, the FTX <laughs> guy, uh, people were going back through his blog and found uh, an example where he's sort of uh, poo-pooing Shakespeare. And um, his, his <laughs> argument, though, um, I, I don't yeah. agree with the, the idea that Shakespeare is bad, but I, I can see where it's coming from this argument of like, hey, we have 8 billion people alive right now. Uh, more people producing art than ever before. Um, statistically, what are the odds that the greatest writer ever was 400 years ago when the sample that's population... It. Can was I just interrupt you? Because yes. that's the most idiotic argument I've ever heard. And I think the <laughs> smile on your face suggests suggest that it's an idiotic argument. I mean, it's not a matter of statistics. Sure. It's a matter of conditions. It's a matter of conditions. What were the conditions that enabled a Shakespeare? I mean, I, I agree. I mean, you know, Shakespeare, the, was, was he born being the greatest literary genius ever? I don't know. It's possible that he was. It's possible a genius like him is so rare that it happens once every 10,000 years. And it happened to happen in, you know, 1600. But even if you stipulate that, you know, genius, I mean, Dante, Goethe, you know, Homer, obviously it recurs. But what are the conditions that enable it to flourish? First of all, just, you know, the kind of, liter the kind of literary culture that Shakespeare grew up among, you know, was extraordinary compared to what we have now. The, the extraordinary sophistication of literary culture then, just if you just look at like the, the letters people wrote each other, as opposed to what we have now, where it's like barely functional literacy for most people. I mean, most educated people. And second of all, it so much is about um, the conditions of production and the conditions of reception, right? So he had an audience. I mean, if, you know, if somebody tried to write plays of the kind of verbal complexity that Shakespeare did now, they would never get anywhere because there's no audience to receive it. Um, and then there are the financial conditions. I, I don't, I, you know, Shakespeare, I forget the exact sort of setup in the Elizabethan theater, but I know that he was a shareholder in a theatrical company. And he actually, he actually did really well. He really rose in life as a result of his work in the theater. He made a good living. Um, it's, it, you know, those are the, that's my answer to Sam Bankman's <laughs> literary critic yes um I, on that point it, it is interesting to consider um like the, you talk about these sort of paradigms of uh 
artistic uh, creation, uh, cultural production in the death of the artist, where one of them was like the uh, professionalization period where things became yeah. professionalized. Uh, and you see that with like MFA schools, um, yeah. a lot of writers would go to and still go to. Um, and it's, I'm curious your thoughts on this, of a guy like Shakespeare, if he took like King Lear to an MFA workshop, like, I can't imagine that it people would be like, oh, what is this like weird, like pun you're saying? Like the first line of like, let's maybe set up this character, like get rid of the plot holes. Like are these MFA programs, this other paradigm now we're talking about, is that also kind of corrosive for art? Well, I don't want to be glib about this. I mean, yeah. you, you, you sketch the funny scenario, but I don't want to be glib about it. And it may well be that Shakespeare got feedback from his, uh, from his uh, actors in performance. And, you know, what we have, we don't exactly know what, what the scripts are that we have there. Are they performance scripts, whatever. But um, I grant you that it's sort of funny to think about Shakespeare workshopping King Lear in a writing program. Um, the writing programs have gotten a lot of criticism for homogenizing uh, fiction, fictional criticism creation. It, it may be true. Um, I've also heard people say good things about their MFA experience and having an audience of, of peers who are taking their work seriously helped them develop and just having two or three years to develop. But I will say, especially now, and we haven't talked about this yet, added to the financial factors we have been talking about are the political or ideological factors that have come into play in the last few years, mm. where artists are expected to well, be political and be correct, be yes. politically correct to not only say the right things, but to talk about the, the right things and not talk about the wrong things. Stay in your lane. You must have something to say about this latest issue, et cetera, et cetera. And those pressures from what people have told me um, are felt, especially in MFA programs where students police each other for the political content and it's not even content. I mean, it's like remote political implications of this work, of their work. So I think, but 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 let me also say that these are these two factors, the the economic and the political. They're not separate. They are synergistic, right? Because if you're dependent, if you're if you're if you're living at the margins, if you're just barely breaking even, and barely you're dependent on just barely breaking even for a relatively small audience. Um, you don't have a lot of, mar you know, you don't have a lot of room for error. You have to, you, you know, one threatened cancellation and it's all over for you. Yeah. Maybe not if you're, or not if you're Dave Chappelle, but very few people are Dave Chappelle and the vast majority of people are just, just scraping by, or they're just even young artists trying to establish themselves and they can't afford to do anything other than toe the line, make work that's not going to offend anybody. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of the, it's death to creativity. It's death to risk-taking, which is central to art. Totally. And, and I think it's interesting to mention uh, the comparison between a, someone who's like a Dave Chappelle and someone who's like a, a fledgling artist. Uh, and I think it, it's very easy when talking about like political correctness and cancellation stuff um as you mentioned to like to be glib but on a i think there's a point here where if you look at the people who like a, a tucker carlson for instance is basically immune to cancellation because he has chosen his audience 
such that the people who, you know, butter his bread are going to be really on his side. And if they right. see a, a, you know, a Twitter mob coming after him, that's going to make them like love him even more. And if you're in one of these MFA programs and you're presenting yourself as like sort of a, you know, semi-enlightened, trying to do good or, you know, liberal, then you're kind of aligning yourself closer to that crowd who might be dealing out the cancellations. And it feels as though That's right. the incentive structure is basically, it's totally backwards. It hurts the people who would be closest to your side and rewards those who would be, you know, the greatest villains. That's very well said. That's right. The left cannot cancel people on the right because the people on the right don't care and they don't care. You said it better than I've, than I've said it. They don't care because that's not their audience. So the people who get canceled by the left are other people on the left. And so you have this incredibly stultifying uh, ideological conformity and now aesthetic conformity, artistic conformity. Um, and it's not just the MFA programs. I mean, it's the publishing industry. There was a great interview. I forget the guy's name, but it sort of became a sensation in literary circles. It just came out a month or two ago in a, a magazine nobody had ever heard of called Hobart with a writer who grew up in a working class Cuban community in Miami and had been writing short fiction about it and had gone to the Iowa Writers Workshop. And he's, he's, he's left the fiction writing game, even though his work had been well received because he's tired of, I mean, and he's, he's Latino, right? But as he points out, like even Latinos have to write about Latino experience the way that the nice white ladies from in, who live in Brooklyn, who run the publishing industry, as he put it, want them to, you know, their conception of Latino. And he was writing about like, you know, his like boys, his like working class, kind of loudish, sexist, you know, crime prone guys that he was hanging out with in Miami. And that's not what they want to hear. And of course, you know, you're not even, you're not, let alone writing about people who don't fit your demographic. You know, that's what staying in your lane is all about. You know, forget about a Tolstoy or a Dickens who can imagine their way into characters very different from themselves. So, um, so that's what we're dealing with. And it's, you know, it's not just publishing. I mean, the theater is just completely ridiculous at this point and so on and so forth. The art world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it seems like to this point about uh, how, you know, like social media and the internet has changed uh, the audience's relation to art is that basically everything online, uh, you know, there's been talk in the past about like the flattening of high and low art, but now everything yeah. online has just been flattened out into content. And so a a tweet is a tweet, uh, whether it's political in nature or it's trying to be humorous. Um, and it feels like a lot of this is just the fact that we are so flooded with information that our brain is trying to do pattern matching as we would, you know, throughout history. And in the past, the supply of data was so little that maybe we could take our time with each new data point and sort of evaluate Ooh. it, put it in its place. Whereas now, if things are just like a little ambiguous, it's like rejected because, you know, if I can't tell if this person's on my side, then I, I don't even want to have to take the time to appreciate this nuance. Um, that's also a really good point. You, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it, it's yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so things like, I mean, you said nuance or, or irony, any kind of, I mean, and again, I mean, this is what art is, this is what real art is about, or it's one of the things that it does is that it, um, it, 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 uh, it emits complex signals, right? Whether we call that irony or ambiguity or metaphor, and, you know, this could also be a visual image. Um, it requires interpretation. It requires thought. And and I, I think you said that really well. Like, we don't have the cognitive capacity to process anything that isn't immediately obvious. Are you familiar with, um, it's called Rule 34 of the Internet? Um, it's uh, It refers to pornography. But I think it uh, it could also just as well refer to what we're talking about now with art. The the rule is, uh, if you can think of it, there's a porn of it. Um, but the, the general rule could be like, if you can think of it, somebody has kind of already done it. Um, and when you were talking earlier about competing in a global uh, context with millions upon millions of people, um, is it possible that it's just like, really hard to be original uh, in the world of art today, such that maybe people just sort of like give up the fight? You know, I've heard young people talk about feeling overwhelmed by a sense that everything has already been said or done, uh, said and done in exactly, for exactly the reasons you just said. I don't know. I mean, I think there's always, I think originality always finds a way if it's genuine originality. I mean, I, I think probably people, and you can even read people talk about you sort of like in the 19th century, which was sort of the first age of the mass produced uh, newspaper, right? So it was possible to produce newspapers more cheaply and literacy had spread more widely. So people then had a sense of being overwhelmed by content. Um, Saul Bellow, I forget if this is the title of an essay, but it, uh, it or just a phrase in an essay. But he he talked about there's simply too much to think about, and how every time the Sunday Times lands on his front door, he's just go he's just plunged into despair. But this was like the 70s or the 80s. So, but but you know, so I think I maybe this is just a blind faith, but I think there's uh, there's always room to say something new. But I will also say that I think the genuine originality is relatively, is a lot rarer than people want to believe. Yeah. Actually. I think, I think true artists are not that thick on the ground, even though everybody feels entitled to consider themselves an artist now, or at least a potential artist. I mean, there's a lot of good art, but really original, new, something that really, that really kind of shifts your consciousness. I think that's pretty rare. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, and it would be great if everybody else could just quit, <laughs> yeah. but they won't. Right. Um, yeah. And cause it, it is that that's an interesting question because, you know, something that uh, we're talking about sort of right before we started recording here um, but which has become, uh, you know, much more salient since the publication of the book is the rise of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning generated art, um, yeah. where it, it is not just possible, but it feels to me almost certain that, you know, at some point in the future, there will be a machine that can generate uh, 
you know, perhaps a, a Tolstoy level novel every like absolutely five. not. I don't believe that for one second. You, you don't believe it, but I, I, but I have, but I have an argument to make. Okay, let's hear. It. So, uh, I, AI, from what they tell me, is already able to um, sort of do graphic design and produce like a sports article. You know, you feed statistics into the AI, and it'll give you like a a sports report that looks like you could publish it in a newspaper. Yeah. Okay. So these, as I understand it, these programs have been trained on, you know, tons and tons of data that, that have trained. So they've trained themselves really to, um, to produce that, which has which already exists. Right. It's, it's new, but it's a new, it's new in a way that isn't new. Right. It's a, it's a sports report that looks the same as all other sports reports. It's a graphic design, you know, you type in, you know, boy eating apple, and it combines elements that already exist. Yes. Um, I assume, based on my limited knowledge of, you know, how computing works, that the AI, I mean, I'm thinking of like chess computers, the AI is making high probability choices. Right. Originality is a low probability choice. So that's the first thing. Originality is a low probability choice. So a painting that doesn't look like a painting that's existed before is by definition a low probability choice. Or in other words, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. And literally artists will tell you that some, you know, that moments of insider inspiration originate as what feel like mistakes. Okay. So that's the second point is that art isn't made algorithmically, right? So it's a, it's a continuous feedback loop between the artist and the developing work and the artist makes a mistake or blurts out a phrase that they hadn't consciously thought. I mean, I'm not an artist, but this happens to me every once in a while. Some of my, my most insightful things or phrases, the ones that I, I'm still thinking about, but I wrote them myself, just kind of, they kind of come out of me as I'm, before I even know it, right? So it's a series of mistakes or low probability choices that, and a, that you're, that's, con, that's shaping the work in progress. And that's the, and that's yet a third thing. War and Peace is this giant, it's not only the result of thousands and thousands of choices, and many of them are low probability choices, but it's an emergent holistic work that can't be predicted in advance. It's not like combining elements mechanically, boy eating an apple. It is, um, it's, it's, it's a unique event. It's a unique event is the way I, is the way I can say it. So let me just, just, let me just finish by giving just one foot more thought experiment, like, and a simple one. It's about sports, right? Can you, t you can, you can get it. You can, an AI can write a story about last night's Lakers game. Can it write an article about LeBron that hasn't been written before? A new angle on LeBron that no one's talked about before? A good sports reporter will be able to do that. That's what makes them a good sports reporter. Right. I'm really skeptical. Well, there, I guess there are a couple of things I would say. Um, the, the one thing that needs to be borne in mind, I think, uh, whenever I hear someone say, oh, this is not going to happen, is that the the history of computers and maybe just machines in general is a history of people sort of folding their arms and saying, well, 
a computer will never be able to do that. And then it does that. People go, oh, well, okay. Okay, but you know what? The history of tech is also a history of false predictions. Not negative predictions, positive predictions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The internet's going to liberate us. You know, citizen journalists are going to do a better job than regular journalists. Right. We're going to have a thoughtful, I mean, you can just go back a few years and some of the biggest tech boosters, some of the most respected tech boosters, Lawrence Lessig, you know, uh, it's going to force, we're going to have all these bloggers who are going to make these deep, really well-informed arguments. So just because, just because I understand what you're saying, but that's not an argument either. No, no. Just because false skepticism doesn't mean skepticism is automatically false. Well, correct. But in all those those instances of people that, that uh, you mentioned, those were people making arguments not specifically about what technology uh, would be created, but sort of the okay. knock-on effects of it. Of okay. like, oh, well, here's, here's what's going to happen. Um, you know, and, and people for years said this about chess, uh, that, you know, it could never never compete with a human because of all these, you know, originality questions, et cetera. Um, and, you, you know, you do have, um, uh, uh, you know, chess, computer-driven um, chess game. But chess is a completely different problem than it, writing a novel. Yes. No, 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 totally. Completely different. It, it is, but the only point I would make is that, and, and I like, you might be right, Um I think it's unclear to anybody right now. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. The the brain ultimately, um, you know, I, I'm a I'm a materialist. I think that there's something. Me too. Right. Um, so, but a computer isn't a brain. Even the most sophisticated computer is that it's 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 a different thing, right? I mean, if we created a computer that perfectly mir- mirrored or mimicked a human brain that would be different. But computers are a completely different form of intelligence. Uh, Yes. Um, But then again, uh, a plane is a different, uh, you know, has a different way to fly than a bird does, but they're both achieving flight. Um, Right. But a a plane can't procreate. (laughs) Sure. Um, So a plane is not a bird and it can't do all the things that a bird can do. It can fly, but it can't procreate. Correct. A computer can play chess, but it doesn't mean it can do everything that a human brain can do. Um, prop, yeah, for right now, yes. Um, I, I do think, though, when you look at some of these, um, you look at some of like the Dolly or um, Mid Journey or these AI generated art, um, a lot of it is, uh, yes, it is trained on previous data. But if you think about what human artists are doing as well, they are in, in, they're doing a similar kind of thing where they're looking at, I mean, Tolstoy, for instance, if he had not read the Bible, his art would have been totally different. Um, it's, it's different, though. I mean, in one obvious way that it's different. And I know I keep interrupting you, but that's no, 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 please. I want us to have a good discussion in the time yes. that we have. Yeah. Um, it's different be- for one, and I'm just uh, answering off the top of my head. Yeah. I think it's probably different for a lot of reasons, but one obvious reason that it's different is that Tolstoy isn't, yeah, obviously all kinds of influences on him, the Bible and, you know, lots and lots of other things. But those are not the only things that go into his, yeah. that went into his writing, right? His experience went into his writing. His reception of all other kinds of art forms 
went into his writing. You know, I, I, there are writers who talk about having been inspired by visual art, by music. The AI that's trained only on writing can't make use of those resources. It Sure, but then you could say, oh, we'll just point it to the other, you know, training data as well. I, I, again, I, I hear How you. Would, I, I, you I, if you could even write a program that would enable them to do that. It's like, well, this is music. What are you talking about? How do I adapt this? And, I, and also, I didn't just say music and visual art. I also said your own experiences. Yeah. Your own feelings. Your own knowledge of, of, of people. Yeah. You're yeah. going to tell me a computer can be taught to do that? A computer does not have experiences. That's true. Um, I just, uh, and, and I, I, I hear you. Um, and I, and I don't know for certain whether this is going to happen, but, um, it definitely seems like they're, they're going to be, even if it's not Tolstoy level, there's going to be novels that come out of this and people are going to like, look at these and read these. And there might be, you know, it might be, you know, 18 year old kids who listen to the computer generated AI music and everyone's going, no, 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 this is not like that's right. On, Steely Dan. And then people are like, well, you know, we don't really care. And like, it, it's, it's possible that that's just a way that crowds out artists as well. And maybe it'll take away all these people who uh, should quote unquote, give up. Like the lower end. It's possible. I mean, and of course I don't know. I'm just making, I'm just making what seems to me the, the, I'm just making the argument that makes the most sense to me. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm right, but obviously I don't know that I'm right. And I also agree with you that people have a have demonstrated a a, a very uh, substantial capacity to accept uh, garbage <laughs> in the place of quality, especially if garbage yeah. is cheaper and more available. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. There's, there's one other question I wanted to ask you about, specifically about... Uh, like the the engineering slash tech um, being used to produce art. Um, and um, th this is sort of a feeling I have, and I wanted to get your sense on it, which is that um, all art basically has to be on some level engineered into being. Like uh, uh, pianos do not just drop from the sky. Um, you know, there's uh, even like your... The alphabet is a form of technology. Uh, the novel, for instance, couldn't have been uh, produced on a mass scale without the printing press. Um, but also, like when uh, the film came out, it seemed like that's when you had a lot of these like stream of consciousness novels as people realized like, oh, just like the bare depiction of events like could be like better served in like a film or like what is it that literature really does in and of itself that's better. Same with like photography and Interesting. like, yeah, sure. And painting, you know. sure. Um, and it seems like part of the reason that we have not had maybe as many like new forms or like groundbreaking works of art is that if the technological innovations are prior to the majority of artistic innovations, um, then it seems like technology has just gotten to a point where it's so advanced that the Venn diagram of people who are like serious artists and who seriously understand the technology is just becoming like way too slim for these innovations to take place. Do, do you think I'm barking up the wrong tree here? That's another, that's another very interesting question. Um, I, I, I actually think, well, you know what? 
so so let me say I, I'm not against technology. I'm not against technology in the arts. I'm against what technology has done to the ability of artists to make a living. Yeah. It seems to me inevitable and desirable that artists will use the new technology to create new kinds of art and new develop new artistic media. Um, but now that I think about your question, I mean, they don't have to understand that medium, the technology from the inside. They just need to be able to work with it, right? So people who make film probably don't know how the camera works, but they know how to use the camera. Yeah, but like they might know about lenses and the different effects of light and things like that. Well, I mean, I think artists, and some artists are doing this. I'm not super acquainted with their work, but I know within the art world, there are more and more artists who are using technology. I was actually just on a panel at Yale last week with a couple of artists who are doing really cool stuff. Uh, one does volumetric film, where it's like a film that you feel like you're actually inside of. I think you put the goggles on and one does all kinds of cool stuff with technology and sort of the realm of like physical art, sculpture, um, you know, and I think they've both explored uh, their media, right? So you talk about lenses. I mean, to, to, to that level, I think, you know, you can become acquainted with the way that, with things you can do with the technology without having to have a computer scientist level of understanding of the technology. I think it's early days for that kind of thing. Um, the truth is, this is another thing, you know, you talk about um, predictions that were made, or I talk about predictions that were made that seemed obvious at the time that didn't come true. So one of them was the hyperlinked novel. Like it seemed obvious, we're gonna have novels and you hit a link and you hear the song that's playing in the background and blah, blah, blah. Right. Why has that not happened? Well, I mean, I think they're, they're probably, we could talk about reasons why it hasn't happened, but it's like just, it isn't necessarily the case that the thing that seems inevitable is actually as inevitable as it seems. If, if, it's funny that you mentioned that. If you got 60 seconds after this interview, I'm, I'm working on yeah. something that's not a hyperlink novel, but it's, uh, it's up that sort of alley that you might find interesting. But on that note, it seems like those hyperlink novels Part of it was just they felt really gimmicky um, and they felt like, you know, especially with like if you click on a link and it brings you to another block of text, it's like, well, this is kind of just like footnotes, but on a computer. OK, um, but yeah, I mean, perhaps we're in early days. Um, I, I'm I'm curious what you think. Um, and this is something you talk about in your book, uh, The Death of the Artist. Um, about these recommendation and uh, engines where people are being uh, spit out, you know, like you, you might like one, you know, piece of content and then the algorithm just spits yeah. out a hundred that are exactly like it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah please. Yeah. This is a I'm, I'm sorry to, to jump on this. And no, I'll, no, no, I'll, I'll what I think is your real question in a second, but this is actually a perfect example of what I was talking about before when I said that a computer isn't going to be able to write war and peace. Okay. Why? Because, Maybe this your experience is different, but what people will typically say about those recommendation algorithms is that they never give them things that they actually want. I, I, I think I quoted somebody in the book, or maybe I didn't use this, but he said it to me in an interview that um, that these that you know uh, that that they that they're stupid wrong. They get it wrong in a stupid way. So, like, if you're interested in this book, 
you'll be interested in these 10 other books. Why does it not work that way? Because, because Amazon has to categorize things. This may be the wrong language, but in a linear way, in a logical way. And part of the way our brain works, and I don't know that it can, you can teach a computer to do this. I mean, I think by definition you can't. Our brain works also through lateral leaps. That's what metaphor is. That's really what those mistakes that I was talking about in the creative process are, the unexpected low probability events. I'm not interested in those 10 books. I'm interested in 10 completely different books that maybe have some connection to this book, but only in my own brain. Yeah. Only in a very kind of lateral, free associative sort of way. However, and maybe this is what you were asking me about, um, people do also say, I mean, I think especially, well, it's not so much the recommendation algorithm, but it'll be more like something like a Pandora channel or a Spotify playlist. Yeah. Right, so the theory was, and this is part of the tech boosting in the sort of late 2000 aughts, right? The infinite shelf, you know, the, the long tail, you know, I talk about this in the book. So the idea was that um, a bookstore only has a certain amount of shelf space and therefore only a certain number of books can be presented to the customer. But the internet is an infinite shelf and there'll be all these quirky books and all these quirky bands and all these, you know, independent Romanian films that we can go online and discover. And so, you know, the, the long tail of the distribution, right? Meaning uh, there are a few things that are very popular and then lots of things that are just a little popular. Yeah. But those part of the argument was not just that those things would become available to us, but the, that the things that are relatively un, less popular will actually become more popular. Each one of them will become, you know, say 10 times more popular and therefore will be financially viable because of the discovery that the internet will, will enable. Well, the exact opposite has happened. Yeah. The exact opposite has happened, partly because most of us are lazy and we're just willing to sit back and let the algorithms do the work for us, the Spotify playlist or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but mainly because the Internet operates on a, a, a logic of scale. Um, a, they, it's called a power law distribution. Basically, the big get bigger, the small get smaller. We also call it virality. Right. So the, you know, that's why the big get bigger. And if you look at like, uh, you know, in the days of Michael Jackson's Thriller, which was this unprecedented blockbuster album back in the 80s, 80 um, percent of the revenue in the music business went to 20 percent of the acts. Now, 80 percent goes to one percent of the acts. That's and that's true in recorded music. And it's also true in live music. Yeah. And similar things happen in books and in visual art at, at so on and so forth. Film, you know, the giant, you know, spandex blockbusters, the superhero movies. And the middle is getting starved out, right? The old sort of mid-budget movie, which is really where the interesting sort of the, the, the movies that were sort of both art and entertainment, right. the ones that used to win the Oscars, those virtually don't exist anymore. They can't get budgeted. Yeah. Right? So the art films are like, the small budget things that no one's seen and then like people make fun of the fact that they win the Oscars because like nobody's seen them. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's what's happened in practice because of the dynamics of the Internet. Yes. And, and that is something that uh, I don't know if you saw Matt Damon talk about this recently, but it was going around where he talked about uh, the decline of the fact that DVD sales went away. It used to be the fact that these like sort of mid range movies that you're talking about could lose money at the box office 
And then people will be like, oh, well, it'll make it back on the DVD. And it might just be like as much in terms of revenue as they would have made at the box office. And so, hey, now you've made a profit. But with that gone, then it's like you have to just have like a smash hit at the box office in order right. to you know, be considered viable. And so then all the risk taking goes out the window. That's um, right. It, yeah, it, it's the, these, I think part of, um, well, we don't have as much time here. So I, I wanted to go into the recommendation engines, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, which is uh, totally off the wall, but I, I read this review that you did of uh, the book, My Struggle, the uh, Norwegian oh, yeah, the Knesgard, uh yes. epic. Yes. yes, uh which for people who don't know it's uh like a, an autobiographical novel um series of like seven and six, uh, six giant six, novels six giant, six giant volumes rather giant volumes yes yeah um and it came out like really quickly and he you know he wrote really quickly yeah. but it's just like very yeah. detailed uh thing of yeah. his life but very um, banal yeah and yeah. you didn't like it why why didn't you like and, it, I thought it was well for the bad. reasons that i said yeah. Uh, and and this became a cause celebre, right? I mean, all all these you know highly esteemed novelists like Jonathan Lethem and Zadie Smith and others were talking about how this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you know, I, yeah. you know, I, I I need his novels like crack. I think Zadie Smith said, and I just find it I just find it this monumentally banal. I mean, uh, it, it 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 he's trying to give the effect of like the 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 minute by minute texture of life yeah. but because he's writing so quickly there's no art to it it's just this very flat description there's sort of no metaphor there's no you know con there's no sort of um kind of uh, uh content what's the word i'm looking for um there's no dense like there's no de there's no compression that's that's the word i was looking for there's no compression there's no literary compression it's not like virginia wolf you know mrs dalloway takes place in one day or ulysses takes place in one day it's not like that it also doesn't play take place in one day but there there's certain you know there are passages where like one scene will inflate to you know scores and scores of pages just through the the minutia of the description and listen i can't speculate as to why people thought this was so great but I just didn't, yeah. and I said so. Um, I, there seems to be, I don't know, there seems to be this movement in literature in recent years that's kind of against invention, against fiction. You know, um, Reality Hunger was sort of a famous manifesto by a guy named David Shields that makes this argument, and it, it has to do with the turn towards memoir, towards autobiographical fiction towards autofiction, which is really just kind of a fancy word for memoir that's slightly fictionalized, towards personal essay, um, certainly towards only writing about characters who are exactly like you and doing it in quote-unquote as realistic a way as possible. But it's this kind of flat realism. So you know, I, I this all makes me sad because I, I believe in the imagination and the ability to inhabit other selves and blah, blah, blah. But whatever. Well, <laughs> why did you ask about that? Do you uh, like him? Um, so I, I've only read the first uh, book of the series. Yeah. Um, and I just read it this year. And I, I see what you're saying. Um, and I wasn't like blown back by it um in, in some ways it feels like uh sort of like an imitation of of proust but like not as good um <laughs> no, not as good 
And I guess I was just curious because you said, uh, I don't want to speculate on why this is popular, but that, that was more what I was interested in. It's like, okay, like I, I don't know why certain things become popular. I read it and I did like, I liked it not enough to read the rest of the books in the series. Um, but I, I was left a little questioning like, okay, is this just popular because there's like, I mean, it seems to be really popular in Norway and I'm not Norwegian. So maybe it, uh, really grabbed people there for some particular reason. Like maybe he highlighted Norwegian life really well. Uh, but then why is it popular in the rest of the West? Right. No, I don't think that's the explanation. I listen, I, I don't know. I mean, somebody cynically said that James Wood wrote a very positive review. And if James Wood likes something, then all the cool kids want to like it too. And yeah. maybe he was just, you know, uh, it satisfied, uh, I don't know. I mean, like even the people who like him talk about being bored by a lot of it, you yeah. know, and I feel like maybe it sort of satisfies them in a sense on a theoretical level. Like the, they like the idea behind it, which is sort of the idea that I just laid out, you know, this attempt yes. to kind of record experience minute by minute. But it's like to me, that's not really enough. You know, it actually has to be worth reading. It has to be enriching. And, you know, Proust is is an, is a is a is a parallel that he's clearly inviting. Yes. Proust has seven volumes. This has six volumes. I mean, it's really clear. And I, in my review, I sort of have a paragraph or a long sentence actually, where I talk about all the things that are in Proust that aren't in Knazgard. Like he's, he's hopeless at even just observing other people. Yeah. There's no real, you know, there's no social satire. There's no kind of penetration of other characters. Um, it's you know enough with this guy i mean if you want to read him if you want to read him go ahead and read him yeah um i i know we've only got like a minute left here but did, did you feel uh at all the same way about david foster wallace no i love david foster wallace okay. uh, it's a completely different project i mean talk it, about totally. literary density i mean yeah infinite jest is a really long book but uh no, it's not about whether, no, I mean, actually, my comparison, I, I think I made this on a podcast with a couple of other critics who were on the other side of the question, was with Elena Ferrante, right? The My Brilliant Friend, yeah, yeah, yeah. Italian, four volumes, four pretty long volumes. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's great. And it's just, but it's, it's you know, I mean... You know, as I say in the Knazgard review, so he, so he, I don't know, he wrote like the first 400 page volume in like three months. Yeah. That's and so I say, crazy. if you want to, if you want to write shit, write fast. Yeah. No one has ever been able to write quality literature at that speed. So. That's a good point. Um, well, listen, I, I'd love to keep talking, but we said an hour. Um, the, uh, the two books, the one that we were talking about for the majority of this time uh, is The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech, and your most recent book, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. Uh, Bill, thanks so much for talking. Sure, this was fun. Thank you to William DeResowitz, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Yammy. See you next time.